Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello. Thank you for joining me this Monday, November 7th. Yes, tomorrow is the midterm election, though hundreds of thousands of you have already voted by mail. I would imagine uh, a large number of you have also taken advantage of early voting. You can vote today. You can vote tomorrow. And guys, I want you to take a minute to feel good about yourselves and all the work you have done. This has been a slog. We have had to fight not only the regular political dirty tricks, but misinformation. There's news today in the Washington Post that Republicans who clearly are very afraid are uh, suing in states to try to get some mail-in ballots thrown out. Because, you know, Democrats have a tendency to vote mail-in ballot a lot more than Republicans do. There is some reporting today, which I think is kind of interesting, that at least in a couple of states, Nevada, Arizona, the Republican Party is a little bit nervous because, you know, they have been the ones who've been saying, don't vote early. You know, don't put your ballot in a drop box. You make sure you show up on Election Day. And there uh, seems to be some indication that for whatever reason, because, you know, Republican voters tend to skew older and all of a sudden it's occurred to party officials, you know, if people aren't feeling well, if the weather isn't great, they may not show up in the numbers we need on Election Day. So now all of a sudden you're seeing these videos. One of the um, one of the candidates, one of the election officials from Arizona who was like, don't you know, don't 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 vote early. Well, she uh, posted pictures on social media. Here I am dropping my ballot in a drop box. Look at me. I'm a Republican. You should do this, too. What? Excuse me. Those drop boxes that have to be watched by guys wearing camo, carrying rifles. (sighs) We shall see. Uh, The Supreme Court in Pennsylvania has already ruled that certain mail-in ballots that don't have a proper signature on the envelope. You know, it isn't just a question of filling out, even in Illinois, your ballot and just putting it in the secret envelope and putting it in the big envelope and dropping it in the mail. You've got to fill out the envelope. And that's an important part of your vote. And uh, the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania has agreed that, yes, you know, those people who didn't sign it where they were supposed to sign it, yes, those... Those ballots could, um, we don't know if we're going to count them or not, but at the very least, they should be set aside. Don't. You know, don't let them throw your vote away because you didn't read all the directions. But you know what? We've worked hard. We've gotten the message out. I think we're going to do okay. I think we are going to be fine. Just remember, at this point in time, polls are meaningless. Even if they're exit polls, they're meaningless. Why do you think Donald Trump had that strategy where election night he was going to declare victory? Because he knew 
that Republicans, much more so than Democrats, show up on Election Day. He knew that in various state races, he was going to take an early lead, a lead that he also knew he was very likely to lose over the next day or two as the mail-in ballots were counted. So he declared victory election night. And then remember when he made that announcement? And by the way, I've, I'm, I won. We should just stop counting the ballots. Just stop. Because he knew the ballots that came in later were not going to go his way. And they didn't. So congratulate yourself. You worked hard. Maybe you sent postcards. Maybe you made calls. You know, maybe you just talked to some of your friends and family about the election and what was at stake. Good for you. This is what Tom Hartman is talking about when he says democracy is not a spectator sport. Good for you. You can look back and say, well, you know what? I tried. I did my best. We've got this great result because of me. And I do think um, I I told you on Friday that in 2016, Michael Moore, the activist filmmaker, Michael Moore was one of the few really public voices who kept saying, folks, you better wake up because Donald Trump is going to win. Donald Trump is going to be your next president. And people were like, ah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Gosh. And um, Michael Moore was interviewed on MSNBC by Joy Reid. And he said to her, do you really think that across the country, women have forgotten? Women have forgotten what the Supreme Court did? Do you think women have forgotten? Do you think that women do not understand that this is something that has to be stopped at the ballot box, this erosion of rights? Now we have Republican lawmakers talking about, well, maybe we we get rid of contraception and in some places in vitro fertilization is at risk. People talking about maybe gay marriage. Let's get rid of that next. There isn't there hasn't been a march in the streets every day. People aren't walking around your neighborhood or even your downtown area carrying signs. And so a lot of the mainstream media has been, well, this is well, this must not be an issue anymore. You think so? You think it's not an issue anymore? I'd be willing to bet you're wrong. I would be willing to bet that more women are still thinking about this than you might otherwise imagine. Republicans are scared. They're scared that they're not going to get turnout on Election Day, and they are taking to the courts to do their damnedest to get mail-in ballots disqualified, thrown out, set aside. I think we're going to do okay. I think we did the good work. I think we just have to sit back now. The only poll that matters is the poll of voters. 
once those votes are counted and we are going to be on the air tomorrow night. We're going to be on the air. Uh, Tim Hogan, Patty Vasquez and I are going to be on the air from six to ten. We're going to have a lot of really interesting special guests. John Fugelsang is planning to be with us. Rick Smith. We are going to be talking to Greg Pallast, Edwin Eisendrath, Spencer Critchley, Jill Winebanks, Hal Sparks. It is going to be a fun night of conversation. What we may not have are all the results. Again, mail-in balloting. In some places, it may be a couple, two, maybe even three days before we have firm results. If we do get races called, especially here in the state of Illinois, we will, of course, bring you that information. If there are concession speeches or acceptance speeches, you'll be hearing them here. And if um, if you have trouble getting our signal at night, just listen on your computer. Either go to heartlandsignal.com and click WCPT820.com in the upper left corner. Go to WCPT820.com, click Listen Live, and you will not need to worry about an AM radio. You'll be able to hear us just fine. You can also uh, listen to us on your phone. Uh, WCPT is carried on the TuneIn radio app. There are lots of ways to listen. We will be with you every step of the way. Okay? We're going to have some fun. We're going to talk some politics. And we're going to put our feet up and relax after a job well done. All the indivisibles, all the local democratic organizations, all the community groups, all the social justice Groups that have worked so hard. It's the payoff. So pat yourself on the back. And let's just sit back and let it all unfold. I do not think we are going to be disappointed. I do not think women have forgotten what is at stake. If uh, for some reason you are one of the people who has uh, yet to get to early voting today or same-day voting tomorrow. Remember, here in the state of Illinois, if you are in the 2nd District or the 3rd District, one of the critical ballot races for you is Supreme Court. Elizabeth Liz Rochford, Mary Kay O'Brien, those are the two votes you need to make. It's a 10-year term. And if those two seats go to the Republicans, then we will have a Republican majority on the Illinois Supreme Court. And you can expect partisan decisions, the likes of which we are seeing in Washington with the partisan hacks that currently make up the U.S. Supreme Court. I was talking to a legislator about all the different protections for women being passed in the state of Illinois. Not only women, women and doctors and health care providers. She said, if we lose those two Supreme Court seats, it's all for nothing. Because the Republicans will appeal. They'll appeal the laws. It'll end up in the Supreme Court. And the two candidates who are running are both far-right guys. 
far-right guys, they do not support a woman's right to autonomy over her own body. They've made that clear. If we don't win those two Supreme Court seats, all of our work on protecting a woman's rights are not only going to be at risk in the short term, that's going to be at risk in the long term. Supreme Court justices sit in those seats for 10 years. So if you've got somebody in your family that's on the fence about whether or not they have the time to vote, that's your last assignment. You've done you've done great work so far. You really have. You've done amazing things. Make sure the people you know and love vote. Make sure they get to the polls. Don't accept any excuses. Well, you know, I'm really busy. I'm not sure where my polling place is. No, 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 no. Not this time. Not this time. Because you know what? It's it's the other side. There has never been a clearer choice. There has never, ever been a clearer choice of any election that I can think of. Some of the people on the other side are really, really scary. There have been some sound bites that I've been collecting that I haven't played for you yet. Might, might be a good idea to put things in perspective, but we need to take a break right now. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You know, um, I'm going to open up the phone lines, 773-763-9278. We are going to be talking to various people starting at about 3 o'clock today. But um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this day before Election Day, if you would care to share them. 773-763-9278. But I wanted to share with you a couple of things that I thought were pretty amazing that I didn't have time for today. You know, one of the big races that I am um, just just shaking my head about, just so confused about, is the Senate race in Georgia. You have a well-educated, well-spoken religious pastor up against a possibly impaired, brain-impaired football player. Somebody who, by his own admission, has been diagnosed with dissociative personality disorder. That's his excuse for not remembering that he put a gun to his girlfriend's head and said he was going to blow her head off. That's not counting the two women who've come forward and said that he strongly encouraged them to get abortions. Because it just wasn't, he told them, well, just, it's not a good time for me to have a kid. Not a good time for me. A while back, a, a prominent Georgia pastor by the name of Jim, Jamal Bryant uh, talked about Herschel Walker in his um, in his sermon. I think, uh, you know, I don't even think I'm going to set it up beyond that. Just listen to this. Ladies and gentlemen, when the Republican Party of Georgia moved Herschel Walker from Texas to Georgia so that he could run for Senate, it's because change was taking too fast in the post-antebellum South. The state had been flipped blue 
And there are some principalities that were not prepared for a black man and a Jewish man to go to Senate at the exact same time. So they figured that they would delude us by picking somebody who they thought would in fact represent us better with a football than with a degree in philosophy. They thought we were so slow, that we were so stupid, that we would elect the lowest caricature of a stereotypical broken black man as opposed to somebody who is educated and erudite and focused. Y'all ain't ready for me today. Since Herschel Walker was 16 years old, white men been telling him what to do telling him what school to go to where to live, where to eat where to buy a house, where to run where to sit down, where to sleep where to pay for abortions where to buy a gun and they, you think they not going to tell him how to vote in 2022 we don't need a walker we need a runner we need somebody who going to run and tell the truth about January 6th we need somebody who going to run and push for the cancellation of student loan debts we need somebody who going to run and make the former president respond to a subpoena we don't need a walker we need somebody who will be steadfast unmovable, always abounding, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Georgia, I need you to know, the slave Negroes y'all are used to don't live here no more. We can think for ourselves, function for ourselves, and vote for ourselves. Why? Because we don't need a walker. Couldn't have said it better myself. Let's hope That message carries the day in Georgia. You know, the Republican Party in Georgia, still very strong. I mean, Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp are up again for governor. He had to cheat last time. Remember when he was secretary of state and he threw out 50, 60,000 some votes right before the election saying that they weren't so they were duplicates or not registered or this or that. We shall see. Um, What will it say about us if Herschel Walker gets elected from Georgia? Can Georgia be that bad off? Even if you're a white Republican in Georgia and you do not want the Democrats to win, how do you vote for Herschel Walker? How are you possibly that blind, that cynical? Anyway, uh, let's go to the phone lines. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Jim. How are you? Hi, Joe. I, for one, am glad you're settled in Chicago. That's all I can say. <laughs> because, because I'm a wreck. You know, I, I'm going to start drinking early, but I think I'll lay off until I hear your program tomorrow night. But I just want to say, I, I just want to say, I'm so tired of these conversations where they're masking their political uh, bias. And it isn't a real, genuine conversation any longer. It's getting difficult to. To uh, see the, for- I don't know, what, what expression do I use? Forest through the trees, whatever the case may be. But yeah. 
Well, that's what that's what they do. They know that their positions are unpopular. They know that what they really believe and what they really want to accomplish is wildly unpopular. So they try to gaslight us. You know, Darren Bailey, oh, well, I I don't have the power to undo abortion. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it if I could. That's a lie. I don't believe that for a minute. I don't believe Darren Bailey's supporters believe it. But he thinks people who might be swayed are going to suddenly, oh, well, see, Darren Bailey, he's not that radical. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's just like all of them. He's trying to gaslight us like they all are into trying to say, well, you know, I'm really middle of the road. You can trust me. I, I know, Joe. And, and then he, they're doing the bidding of the money people. We know that. They brought the Supreme Court. We all know that. And uh, it's time for the average citizen to stick up for their rights. <laughs> I'm glad you're, Joe. I'll be hanging out like the <laughs> tilt the world. Anyway, you have a good night. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for calling. We are going to spend uh, the next half hour taking your calls. We are going to be uh, talking about how you're feeling. Um, I know we're all a little on edge in part because, first of all, the polls are unreliable. I mean, they just are. They they're whether they tell you what you want to hear or what you don't want to hear. Don't trust them that you really can't. And um, Republicans have made a big last minute media push to try to convince the country that they're coming on strong. You know, Democrats may have had the lead before, especially after that whole Roe v. Wade thing. But we're clawing it back because, you know, people care about gas prices. Well, you know, gas prices go up and gas prices go down. But when you lose your right to decide medically what should happen to your own body, that's forever. That's forever. Let's not lose sight of the big picture. We're going to take a break. Come back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is November 7th. Today and tomorrow, congratulate yourself. You worked hard. We just now get to enjoy the fruits of our labor we are talking about this election. We are going to be talking about to some journalists and some activists uh, starting in the three o'clock hour. But for now, we are taking your calls and I'm sharing with you some of the sound bites about, about the election that I didn't get to share with you earlier in the week. First, let's go to the phone lines. Bob's calling from Indiana. Hello, Bob. Oh, hello, Joni. Um, well, oh, uh, Saturday. Uh, I was listening to uh, one of WCPT's basically non-political shows, and some uh, joker called in and uh, snuck in a plug for the wonderful dim-witted doofus that's running for your uh, uh, governorship on the Republican side. Oh, Darren Bailey? Yeah, so I thought I would... uh, uh, hand it back to him and just say from an old uh, Hoosier lad, um, my advice over there is vote blue and Pritzker too. <laughs> I like that. I like that very much. <clears throat> Nicely done. Well, I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, also you in Indiana, 
um, you know, we're going to get things squared away over here and then maybe we can uh, help you guys out a little bit more over in Indiana. Um, and you are doing great work. I, you know, you, you are, you are leading the charge for us. And I appreciate that. Well, you know, I don't know because my signature, because of my quasi disability, uh, unfortunately with my right hand, which is what I write with, whether, whether they'll accept it or not. But I think if nothing else, because this past year, as long as I could do it, I sent little checks to like the Warnock and Barnes and Ryan and on and on. So my feeling is if they didn't accept my vote, some of my checks will have helped put good people in some place. Yes, absolutely. You know, absolutely. I've done I've done the same thing. I've sent some money off to candidates. And, you know, if you if you believe in someone and you're not able to help them by knocking on doors or sending out postcards for them and you can afford to send, you know, five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars, every little bit helps. That's what people have told me who are running for office. You know, yes, the big donations of people like the Uline family. You know, those get a lot of attention. But for a lot of Democrats and even some independents, it's the grassroots donations, $5 here, $10 there, that really that really make a difference. And uh, good work, Bobby. Good work. Um, I have, hope you continue day. to fight the good fight in Indiana. Okay, you too. All righty. Um, let's go back to the phone lines. Mark is calling in from Lake Barrington. Hi, Mark. Hi, Joan. Uh, happy uh, Election Day Eve. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sharing with you my frustration. We've talked before about mainstream media, and I've been a, a, a critical viewer of it for quite a while. I want to just start by saying I became politically active back in 2004 and got more and more involved. And I don't know if people know it, but there were 119 progressive radio outlets throughout the United States in 2008. And when Obama came on board within one uh, four-year cycle, all but about 14 were gone. And they were flipped uh, in local stations to uh, sports or uh, Latin American or even Polish channels. Mm -hmm. And this is a story that's not been told. Now, you can't buy uh, a radio station. All you can do is lease time if the powers to be like Sirius or, uh, you know, I mean, you can do it on the satellite, but no one, you know, is paying for satellite these days. They're streaming it, but who wants to pay? Well, you make a you make a really good point. Um, There was a a whole network, Air America, of progressive stations. And 
Um, when it was created, it turned out to be it was it was costing the people who created it money. They sold it to a different group that continued it. They also couldn't uh, figure out a way to make money with it. And it um, got disbanded. Now there's nationwide. I think there's only seven or eight talk radio right. stations that identify as progressive. And it's too bad well, because the Republicans the understand that media is very influential and, you know, Tom Steyer, how much money did Tom Steyer waste on a failed presidential bid that was never going to go anywhere? It was like an ego thing. Bloomberg. 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 I mean, you know, if these people would invest, even if it isn't a money making proposition, invest in progressive media. That's you know, I can't tell you how many otherwise reasonable people Back when Rush Limbaugh was alive, I was astounded at people who I never would have suspected of listening to him and his lies and his vitriol. And they did. It's just um, I don't. That's one big failing. I think that Democrats, I mean, I know that the world, especially the younger world, is turning digital. So fine. Make it a YouTube channel. Make it a freaking TikTok for all I care. But we've got to get more media out telling the good story of progressive success. We have to work literally 50 times harder to get our message out because network news won't do it. They won't give you an even shake. I told you several times about Channel 7, their national news and how they're you know, I have to say, WCPT, if you listen to the um, uh, top of the hour news broadcast with AP, AP is totally conservative, if not worse. They don't ever have a nice thing to say. I and mean, I think it's ironic that on WCPT, you get that. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because that was a discussion I had with some callers toward the end of last week. That, you know, usually, frankly, at the top of the hour, I'm getting organized for what's going to come. And I only if I listen to AP at all, it's with half an ear. But I've heard you're not the only caller. There have been a number of callers who've said, I can't believe WCPT airs AP News because they do. They uh, they apparently do a lot of that stuff that The New York Times does, like jobs numbers are great. But what will Biden do in three months when they tank? I mean, it's like, hello. This morning, uh, I'll just give you a quick and then I'll move on. But they said gas prices went up four cents a gallon uh, this past week. You know, not to mention that it was, uh, you know, 80 cents a gallon less than it was two months ago. Mm-hmm. See, that's, the, that's the malpractice. Yep. That yep. For, and it you know, of colors the way people think. You know, I mean, the economy is booming. There are great jobs. Yes, we have a little bit of inflation, but not nearly as much as the rest of the world is having right now. And that should be the message. Instead, it's this, well, you know, people are worried about gas prices. Well, they may be worried about gas prices, but gas prices have been largely brought under control by the Biden administration. But God forbid... God forbid anybody should uh, take that that stance. It's really disappointing. And I'm going to listen to AP more closely. 
I'm also going to give some of the people uh, in the in powerful positions back at the station uh, um, a heads up to maybe start listening to AP more critically because, you know, you're not the only voice saying this. It's probably free feed rather than some of these outlets where you have to pay for it. I don't know. I don't think anything's free anymore. But but we'll check into it. Two things, two things uh, real important. The two things that the Dems can't campaign on, media reform and Supreme Court reform. Those are the two things they have to enact if they maintain both sides of Congress. Amen. Amen. campaign on it. They've got to do it. They've got to do something. They've got to do something. We can't live like this. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Let's take a break. We're going to be back with more calls right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Congratulate yourself. It's November 7th. End of business tomorrow. And the midterms will be behind us. You did great work. Good for you. Good for you. That's what Democrats do. We get up off our butts and we talk to people and we call people and we send postcards and maybe we knock on doors. We find a cause or a candidate we believe in and then we work for them. Congratulations. We are going to spend a few more minutes before we get to our guests talking about this talking about some uh, sound bites that I wasn't able to share with you during the week and taking your calls. Let us go to the phone lines. Dave is calling in from Hoffman Estates. Hey, Dave, how are you? Hey, Joan. You may or may not like what I got to say. But All right. Okay. I'm Let me steal myself. I'm ready. Go ahead. Well, I mentioned to Patty the other week, and, and I'm finally meeting last night. The Democratic Party, really, we've blown it on the fact that when the door knockers and whatnot, nobody asked, did you happen to have anybody at home that was going to be turning 18 before Tuesday, that they would have been eligible to be registered to vote. And as we very well know, that's what helped pull President Obama in the first one with the, the young vote. Mm-hmm. Three mm-hmm. captains blew it. I'd say Jamie Harrison blew it. Uh, then the only way the word's getting out is I've said it on the 50,000 watt blower, you know, that. CPT, we kind of did all blow it, you know, that got to get these young people interested. And I mean, if they're kind of ignored anyway, you know, and they just, well, you know, <laughs> I've been on social media. I, you know, I've had I talked to Jill Weinbanks all the time and she and Victor, she who is a UCLA student, they do a podcast where they call it. Um, intergeneration, intergenerational uh, politics, and they talk about the issues of the day with um, with the, a young person's perspective and then an older person's perspective. And I have been following him on social media, and he is claiming that you know he's obviously he's a college student, but he's clearly he was the youngest delegate for Biden in the last election. He's up to politics, up to his ears in it. And he has been looking for all the different studies and surveys of the youth vote. And he believes that young Democrats are turning out. Look, he posted this uh, five hours ago. He said, let's look at what we're seeing with one day left in the following battleground states. Turnout among young Democrats is far higher 
than this time in 2018. Uh, up 23,000 in Georgia, up oh, 4,500 in Ohio, up 31,000 in Michigan, up 55,000 in Pennsylvania compared to 2018, which was the last midterm election. And his his he's saying, you know what? Young Democrats are not only coming out, they are surging. I think that Roe v. Wade is their Vietnam, Dave. I think it's the finally something happening politically that is going to really, really screw around with their life and they're mad about it. So we'll see if uh, my friend Victor is correct about this. Okay, I hope you're right, but uh, they could have just added that little extra sentence when they're out knocking on doors. And by the way, do you happen to have somebody? Mm-hmm. You can't just assume that that they that their parents told them that you can vote. You know. Yep. Yep. I I agree. It comes out I, that we we missed the we missed the boat on that one. Well, it was something that I could have talked about more. Um, and, and I will make sure I do talk about it more going forward. I just, um, my kids registered the second they turned 18 and I'm so proud of them. They have voted in every election that they were able to vote in since then. Cause I think a lot, a lot of times it's the parents who set the tone. If you grow up in a household where your parents always go out to vote, then even if your parents don't beat you over the head about registering and getting out there. You, I think you internalize that message. And I think those are the, the young people who normally would get out and vote. I think that there's an extra level, though. I think there's an extra level of young people voting because, I mean, let's face it. I don't like Roe v. Wade. I don't like my daughter living in a world where she has less, fewer rights than I had growing up. But it is it is the women in their 20s and in their 30s and in their 40s who have to live with this in a way that I won't have to live with it in the way and no man has to live with it. And I think that's light in a fire. I really do believe that. I really, I really, think, I really do. Right, it just yeah. seems like the, that, you know, the Republicans, they started the chipping away at that stone oh, since Clinton's time. And then they really kicked it into higher gear with after Obama. You know, mm-hmm. they look at the long game where we wait till like 1130 of the 12th hour. And all of a sudden, boom, we kick it in. And some people get overload of uh, either the, uh, the yads or whatever. And yeah. Well, that's why I say, you know, we got to take care of ourselves. we got to reward ourselves for the work we've done. Yep. We've worked hard. And I think that each and every one of us is amazing. Is amazing. Thanks for the call, Dave. All right, Joan. Good luck for us tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, I was talking at the beginning of the show about how of all the elections I've covered and paid attention to, I've never seen such a difference between candidates. Honestly, I mean, there were times like, say, back in Illinois, when Mark Kirk was running for Senate. You know, Mark Kirk was a Republican, but he bears no likeness to the Republicans of today. He was, you know, Charles Chuck Percy, you old enough to remember him? My God, he would be considered a Democrat today. He was a Republican in his day. The difference between the candidates is starker than I've ever seen. And also, <sighs> thank you, Donald Trump and your minions. 
but I've never seen such blatant racism enter into this. Some people aren't even, I mean, you know, we've talked about Ron Johnson and his dog whistle. Oh, don't vote for Mandela Barnes. He's not like us. Hmm. In what way were you talking about that, Mr. Johnson? (sighs) Stephen Miller, the racist Trump aide, has put together an ad. He has a legal group. He put out an ad that was designed to go after Joe Biden on affirmative action. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. It basically says, don't vote for any Democrats if you're white. Uh, Are you kidding me? I mean, this isn't a dog whistle. This is the dog. Paul, if you if you have that ad, could you play it now? When did racism against white people become okay? Joe Biden put white people last in line for COVID relief funds. Kamala Harris said disaster aid should go to non-white citizens first. Liberal politicians block access to medicine based on skin color. Progressive corporations, airlines, universities all openly discriminate against white Americans. Racism is always wrong. The left's anti-white bigotry must stop. We are all entitled to equal treatment under law. America First Legal paid for this ad. White racism. Um, There you have it. Uh, Whites are not getting a fair shake. This ties in with that whole you will not replace us. Uh, The Republican Party wants some white people to be very frightened that the population is changing. Black people and brown people are gaining in numbers. Some say by 2050, um, white people will be a minority population. And of course, we can't have that. We can't have that, right? Because what if they treat us as bad as we treated them all these years? What if that happens? Okay, let's go back to the phone lines before I get too upset here. Uh, Ron is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Ron. Hello. Uh, Senator uh, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin said yesterday in so many words, if the Republicans gain control of the House and Senate, there will never be another election to uh, get us out of the office. So oh, yeah. The, a lot of the Republicans are saying that they're saying um, one of the Republicans running for office said, if I get into office, basically, you'll be, you know, don't worry about it. You'll never have to vote again. Huh? What? Excuse me. Don't worry. Don't just don't you worry your pretty little heads. We'll just take care of you. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Scary stuff, isn't it? Yeah, very. But it's interesting because one of those. um Republican states or purple states, Arizona, I just in the Washington Post this morning, uh, election officials very nervous in Arizona because they told everybody not to vote till Election Day. And now they're terrified that people, um, a lot of the people in Arizona who vote Republican are an older population. <gasps> what if they don't feel well? What if the weather's bad? What if what if the car won't start? Oh, my gosh. Have we have we made a mistake? In Nevada, they're asking themselves that. In Arizona, they're asking themselves that. 
And I, I, I certainly hope they're right. I hope all those Republican voters just decide to stay home. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Ron. I appreciate it. Okay, what do we have coming up for the rest of the day here? We are going to be talking with um, some of the folks from Injustice Watch. And they have, uh, they remember, they put out a judicial guide. If you still haven't voted... Uh, it's a it's a good way to get uh, judge recommendations for the state of Illinois. And trust me, there are so many judges on the ballot. You're not going to believe it. Some of it you have to actually choose between candidates. Some of it you have to just decide who's going to be retained and who's not. And I defy you to have all that information in your head without a guide. Well, I was going to be talking to a couple of journalists um, uh, we're going to talk to somebody from the American Independent and our good friend Pat Kreitlow from the Up North News. And um, we have a we have a lot to get to. Before we get to that, I want to share with you a couple more. I think we have time to get them both in a couple more uh, quick sound bites um, that I didn't get to play. Um, I call them <laughs> Paul Shavari knows I call them evil sound bites. Um, one of them is um, <sighs> Senator Mike Lee. Now, this is a little tricky to listen to because he's not talking right into the mic. He's off mic. Senator Mike Lee telling one of his constituents that he would like to get rid of. This is the senator from Utah. He would like to get rid of. Not bring it up for a vote every year, not reassess it. He wants to get rid of Social Security. He says we need to phase it out. We need to pull it up from the roots. We need to get rid of it. Really? Senator Lee, you've got a pension from being in the Senate. Should we take that away from you? Because, you know, that's like government welfare. That's like government welfare. You really don't deserve that. Anyway, listen to what Mike Lee said caught off mic. Be my objective to phase out Social Security, Not to pull it up by the roots and get rid of it. Um, people who advise me politically always tell me that's dangerous, and I tell them, in that case, it's not worth my running. That's why I'm doing this. We're getting rid of that. Medicare and Medicaid are of the same sort and need to be pulled up. That's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm doing this. Let's phase out Social Security, pull it up from the roots, get rid of it. This is what we're up against. Let's take a break and get started on our day right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Juliet Sorensen is the executive director for Injustice Watch. We have been touching base with her as uh, the election gets nearer and nearer. Injustice Watch put out a great voting guide that if you uh, still uh, haven't done your voting and you plan to do it in person either later today or tomorrow i strongly urge you to take a peek at it she joins us now uh to talk about where things stand at this moment juliet welcome back to the program thank you so much june it's great to be here 
So I'm just curious, do you have any way of know, of knowing either with some kind of uh, digital record keeping how many people have viewed or downloaded your voting guide? We do track the analytics pretty carefully, Joan. Um, we can see how many people have viewed it. Um, as you know, we publish the guide both in English and in Spanish. We can also track how many, uh, the amount of time that people spend with the guide. So are you really? looking at it and moving on? Uh, because as you know, there's a lot of information there. And if you're going to use it, it's going to take, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll say more than five minutes at least. Uh, there are 61 judges on the ballot in Cook County after all. That said, uh, this year we've also printed, for both the primary and the general election, more than 300,000 print versions of the guide, uh, which we've distributed throughout Cook County. That's wonderful. Are there branches of Injustice Watch in other states doing this kind of work? Not currently, but I'll tell you, we get that question all the time, really for well, local Well, part national. of the reason, Juliet, I'm asking is my daughter now lives in California, and she was like, oh, I don't, I'm not sure who to vote for. And she goes, how do I find a voting guide? And I said, well, there's Injustice Watch. And she's looking up. She goes, Mom, I'm pretty sure this is just Illinois. And I thought, <laughs> oh, well, that, that's a bad idea. we got to expand that. Well, you know, Cook County has one of the largest unified court systems in the world, and there are 400 judges here alone, Joan, and almost all of those are elected. So I will tell you, we have our hands full here, but there's no doubt that there's a need for a resource like this for voters across the country. Absolutely. Um, it would be it would be really worthwhile if this kind of thing was available everywhere. So you said you can, your analytics show you not only how many people are looking at the work you've done for the election, but how much time they're spending on it. Uh, how many people who look at it spend a decent amount of time? I mean, how long, what is the time, amount of time that you estimate means that they really looked it over thoroughly? Yeah, so we can identify the average, and um, here's the thing. If, you're, if your audience, if your listeners are um, able to go to, to the web right now and they go to injusticewatch.org, the guide is going to pop up right away. You're going to see that 61 judges are running in Cook County, uh, and the, if you scroll straight through the guide, it's going to go from high to low, so to speak. So there's one Supreme Court justice on the ballot here. Um, there are six appellate justices on the ballot here. And then it goes down. So you can scan through it to look for names of judges you may be familiar with. But as we know, the vast majority of voters simply don't know these judges. And that's where the time-consuming part comes in. Injustice Watch has researched each and every candidate on the ballot. So you click on the info tab, and that is going to have their training, their experience, if they're a current judge, their previous experience, high-profile cases or rulings they might have had in the past. In addition, Joan, uh, we uh, surveyed all of the candidates, and almost all of them responded to our surveys. And the the biggest open-ended question we posed to these judges seeking retention is um, what what the power of the bench means to them? How do they view that that responsibility and obligation? 
And then finally, our guide also includes ratings from the bar associations. Uh, we at Injustice Watch do not endorse ourselves. We don't give a thumbs up or a thumbs down, but we do include the bar associations who evaluate the candidates. That's a tricky thing with when it comes to judges, because I, as you just said, a lot of the judges in Illinois are elected and I talk to a lot of them who are on the ballot. But it's a it's a tricky conversation to have because you're trying to get a feel for what this person values and what they believe. But because they are running to be a judge, they really can't talk about their positions on a lot of the issues of the day. Do you find those conversations tricky? Absolutely. Um, They will not answer questions about specific cases, and they will not answer questions about specific issues that might turn into a case. And they're prohibited um, from doing that by the judicial ethics canons. Um, So it's not that they can't. uh, Excuse me, it's not that they won't. It's that they can't. Um, What we can do, though, is we can look at their past rulings. We can look, as I said, at their training and experience. Um, And we look at um, not only bar associations, but in Justice Watch's own independent reporting when it comes to things like judicial temperament, how they treat the parties who appear before them. Um, If their trial court judges have their rulings stood up on appeal, things like that. Mm hmm. And, of course, I've been talking almost every day about the importance of the two Supreme Court races in the state of Illinois. If you live in the second district or the third district, you will see a choice between a Republican and a Democrat for the two open Supreme Court seats for these for the second. I know it's a wide area. Off the top of your head, the second district and the third district, how many, do you have any idea how many counties they touch? I do. Um, so these districts were redrawn a couple of years ago, um, actually just last year, um, by Democratic officials, and they were redrawn for the first time in more than 50 years. So today, both the second and the third districts are concentrated in the Chicago suburbs, and they are where they were traditional Republican strongholds. They're definitely more mixed now. The second district today includes uh, Lake, Kane, McHenry, Kendall, and DeKalb counties, Joan. And the third district includes Will, DuPage, Kankakee, Grundy, Iroquois, LaSalle, and Bureau. If you live in one of those counties, you will see on your ballot a choice for Supreme Court. I urge you to look to see where Mary Kay O'Brien's name is on your ballot or Elizabeth Liz Rochford. Uh, They are the Democrats. They are the ones who will ensure that Illinois stays a state where a woman's right to make her own medical decisions is respected. Um, Julia, talk about the appellate court, because sometimes people get confused. You know, we got all these different courts. There's circuit court, there's Supreme Court, there's appellate court. Talk to us about uh, the appellate races. Yeah, so the appellate justices are also uh, elected here in Illinois. Um, the, the appellate justices face election once every 10 years, like the Supreme Court. 
justices. Uh, the circuit court, the trial court judges face election or retention once every six years. Um, but yes, your listeners should know, of course, the appellate, both the appellate and the Supreme Court level um, have the power to overturn lower court rulings in a much broader area. I described the multiple counties in the second and third districts. So those rulings will control the law in those counties. And, of course, the Illinois Supreme Court controls Illinois law throughout the entire state. It gets confusing, doesn't it, in the state of Illinois? Um, and my family for years has relied on me uh, to to give them all the information they need to, d- to know about judges. But um, if you don't have easy access to Joan Esposito's voting guide, I strongly urge you, to look at the recommendations and the candidate bios in the Injustice Watch voting guide. Juliet Sorensen and I are going to continue to talk about this right after a break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Juliet Sorensen, who is the executive director of Injustice Watch. They have a great guide a, a nonpartisan guide to who's on the ballot, who they are, where they came from, who likes them, who doesn't like them, all the information you need to make a good decision, whether it's the Supreme Court or the appellate court or the circuit court. Um, once again, Juliet, just in case there are still people out there that haven't gone to the polls yet, how can they find the guide? Joan, they can go to www.injusticewatch.org. Right at the top of our homepage, you can click on the Judicial Election Guide. It'll bring you to it, and we have the complete guide in both English and Spanish. Okay, after the polls close tomorrow, and uh, you put your feet up and uh, pour yourself uh, a beverage of your choice. <laughs> what will Injustice Watch focus on after November 8th? Well, our focus is the judges, Joan. Uh, we'll be interested, of course, in the so-called retention class, those 61 judges trying to keep their jobs here in Cook County. Um, we will be looking, of course, uh, at those Illinois Supreme Court races. Those are very close and some significant issues hang in the balance. Um, so those will, that will be what we'll be watching tomorrow night. And after the election is behind us, what will Injustice Watch be focusing on in, in the rest of November and December and January? Well, Joan, in terms of uh, voter engagement in judicial elections, one of the things that we track is the number of people who actually vote for judges over time. And I'll give you an example of that. As you said a moment ago before the break, all those names on your ballot, they are very confusing. And what we've seen traditionally is that people really don't vote in those down-ballot races, or at least the rate of voting falls way off. Now, that's problematic, of course, because a a political machine and their foot soldiers could vote the way the party bosses tell them to. Uh, People could simply vote arbitrarily because they like the sound of this or that person's name. But that's not really an informed society taking part in democracy. So we at Injustice Watch have tracked the number of voters participating in judicial elections since we first started 
publishing our guide back in 2016, and we've seen it tick up with every election. The other thing we've seen is that in 2018 and in 2020, voters decided not to retain one of those sitting judges. Now, that may not sound like a big deal, one judge in an entire group um, for two elections in a row. But when you stop to consider the last time voters chose not to retain judges was more than 20 years ago in the wake of Operation Greylord, which your audience might remember was a massive scandal related to bribery in the Cook County Courts and a federal investigation. This uh, data that we have about an engaged electorate and people coming to the polls armed with information is really very heartening. Well, it is daunting, but there are good sources of information out there. And I really appreciate the work you do. And also, I think it's fascinating the follow up that you do to um, to make sure that people, you know, act on the information. You know, it sometimes seems like it's hard to get the information out. I mean, I talk about this kind of stuff every day, Juliet, and I still get emails from people. Like, I've been talking, you know, nonstop about judicial races, and I'll get emails, you know, what was that you were talking about? Um, you know, I, here's where I live. You know, I got my mail in ballot. It's so confusing. It's, it really is a situation where just going over it once isn't enough, is it? Well, it's really not. You know, Joan, judges are, they're unusual uh, elected officials in that they're not in the public eye the mm-hmm. way that you, your your governor or your mayor, right? Or even some of the more local offices, the um, the assessor is regularly reported on. Um, but that's really why Injustice Watch produces this this public service journalism. We saw we saw a real need, but we also saw an opportunity to fill this information void. You're right, though. Just putting it out there is not enough, and that's why we engage in a large scale community engagement campaign called. Hashtag check your judges. Um, it's why we produced uh, 300,000 print versions of the guide. I don't know if you or your audience is aware of this, but two years ago for the first time, the Cook County Jail actually became a designated polling place, designated by the Illinois Board of Elections. We've delivered 4,000 print versions of the guide to voters in the Cook County Jail. Um, we are attending college fairs. We have partnered with Chicago Public High Schools, with local libraries. Again, our our goal is an informed public and a participatory democracy. I think that should be everybody's goal. I mean, <sighs> truly, truly. Yeah. And which is why it, it just gives me chills, Juliet, when um, when I heard that um, a Republican candidate from out west say, Oh, vote me into office and you won't ever have to worry about voting again. What? What What kind of message is that? I know. What do you think that person is insinuating? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure I don't like it. (laughs) I'm with you. 
It does me seem into like office and I will <laughs> shut yeah. down elections. Vote me into office and you can stop paying attention. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it just seems like more so than I remember from previous elections that well, the I think choices right. are so black and white this time. You know, and you've you've obviously been in journalism for a long time. You can appreciate this. I think it also in, underscores the need for independent journalism. There's an old saying that the watchdog never barks when a family member passes by. Well, I want the watchdog to keep on barking, and we all should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what advice do you have for people who haven't yet voted? I know that the clock is ticking. Yeah. So do access those nonpartisan voter guides online because they really do contain the information you need to educate yourself before heading to the polls. You can either bring it, bring something on your phone, you can print something out, you can mark it up at home, but it's worth taking the time to do that. My next piece of advice is once you walk into the polls, Don't leave those down-ballot races blank. Again, information is power, your vote, your choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And with that, uh, we'll all leave the polling place knowing that we have participated in a a critically important time in our city, state, and society. It it really is a message that... As Tom Hartman says, democracy is not a spectator sport. We need and, and, and to all those people out there, I know that you have busy lives and, you know, you got the kids and you got school and maybe you've got their sports and maybe you and your significant other both have jobs. Maybe you have more than one job. Maybe you got to take care of the pets. I get it. I get it. Maybe unlike Juliet and unlike me, you can't spend as much time on these ballots as as you would like. But I'm begging you, 10 minutes. I, I think that's a fair amount of time. Even if somebody can spare 10 minutes, look over your Injustice Watch guide. I think that they can get valuable information in 10 minutes. Do you think I'm wrong, Juliet? I agree with you. Ten minutes to make the world a better place for your kids. I mean, I think that's a good deal, Juliet. It's a good deal. And like I said, we do this as a public service. So it's out there for people to take advantage of. How does, um, do, do you do, do you guys do fundraisers? How do you keep going? Who's, how do you fund yourselves at Injustice Watch? Yeah, so we are a nonprofit organization, uh, and as as I said, this is a public service. We don't have a paywall. Uh, we don't charge uh, any type of membership, um, and so we do rely on donations from individuals. We do have some grants from foundations. We don't, by the way, take government money, except for the PPP at the height of the pandemic. Um, but we uh, think that's important, again, to establish our independent bona fides. Um, so that is how we we keep uh, raising money for what is really actually a very resource-intensive effort. Your audience may, will see the, the depth of the research that we've done um, and how reliable it is. It's fact-checked. It's corroborated. 
Um, and it is, um, it's time-consuming. It's a major effort. Our entire Oh, my God, yes. But I can't really, imagine. It's the labor of love. The hours that you put in, but it's, it's worth it. Juliet Sorensen, Executive Director for Injustice Watch. Uh, they're a wonderful resource. Keep the name front and center every time you need to vote. Juliet, thank you for being here, and thank you for the work you do. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. We are going to take a break. Uh, the lovely and talented Paul Shivari is going to bring us his dulcet tones with traffic, and we're going to be back with more political talk right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. The American Independent is a progressive journalistic site that does some really interesting work. You know, we talk all the time about how the mainstream media is uh, mired in whataboutism to the point where it just seems like any positive news that comes out of the Biden administration simply has to be coupled with some sort of headline that also negates whatever positive result they're they're talking about. It's really beyond frustrating. And I find that the American Independent is a place where you can get the good news without the whataboutism. One of their reporters is Oliver Willis, and uh, Oliver joins us now. Hello, Oliver. Thanks so much for being here today. Hi, thanks for having me. You've done some really interesting work in the last uh, couple of months, keeping an eye on what's going on in Washington. Um, I know you've done some more recent stuff than this, but I want to go back to the end of October when you when you said quite, you know, you reported quite quite blankly, uh, blankly, quite um, quite clearly that Republicans are really in a way that I haven't seen for a long time, going after Medicare and Social Security. Uh, talk yep. about that article. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, what they've promised is that, you know, if they win the election, that in exchange for raising the debt ceiling, which is, you know, the, the, the rate at which the government, you know, uh, you know, regulates how much it spends money on things that they want cuts to social programs like Social Security and Medicare. And they're basically saying that they want to hold, you know, these programs that millions of people around the country, you know, President Biden spoke about this a few weeks ago. Millions of people around the country rely on these programs. I mean, we all probably have someone in our family that relies on Social Security, Medicare, like, you know, to keep them going every day to, to keep they rely on this. They paid into it. You know, and they're talking about cutting these programs. And also, you know, in, in exchange, they're, they're, they're saying that they're going to do something that, you know, econo econ economic experts have said is going to crush the economy. And it could actually hurt the global economy if you don't raise the debt ceiling because the U.S. government isn't won't be able to do things like, you know, pay military contractors. And there's, you know, as you know, there's hundreds of millions of people relying on that. And it, it's sort of a crazy thing, you know, in the history of American politics to threaten not to, to raise the debt ceiling. And, and Republicans have done this before. And they're basically have said, you know, Kevin McCarthy has said, well, you know, if, if I if we win and I become, you know, essentially Speaker of the House or, you know, the leader of the, the majority in the House, well, we're going to start talking about these things. And we're going to talk about them in exchange for, you know, they like to say cutting entitlements. I like to say you're 
you slice in the safety net because uh, that's that's what these programs were created for. So security was created, you know, after the Great Depression because people didn't have a safety net. And it's it's one of the most beloved American programs because it is this sort of safety net. And so, yeah, it's, it's very much under threat in this election. And it's one of these issues that, you know, honestly, until President Biden brought it up, you didn't hear a lot of people talk about it, even though Republicans have been saying this kind of thing for a very long time. I mean, this has sort of been one of their go to, you know, bucket list items that they wanted to do once they get power. And, and you know, they have a history of trying to cut the safety net before. It's, it's not out of nowhere. Well, you know, I've heard Republicans for a long time bemoan social programs and you know, um, the food stamps, SNAP programs, things like that, that are, you know, contributing to the to the welfare state. But here's what I find interesting. This isn't like usually when they talk like this in the past, I've heard them um, try to focus on programs that, frankly, maybe didn't affect as many people or um, just weren't as well known. But Social Security, I grew up believing that that was something that a politician never talked about. You talk about cutting Social Security when a lot of your voters need that money to live, and it's a program that during their working life they paid into. I mean, it's not like a a handout. It's not like welfare. I was always taught that that was untouchable and that it was political suicide to go after something like Social Security. But the Republican Party, as it exists today, is either so emboldened or so radicalized that they don't seem to be restrained by those concerns. Is that your sense, Oliver? Well, I mean, that's that's a little bit part of it. But the interesting thing has been, you know, since, you know, especially President Biden, because he has the podium and he is the president, since he brought this up, And then they've asked Republicans about it. They try to say, well, we're not quite for it. And it becomes this, again, like you said, the fourth rail of American politics, because it's it's a really unpopular thing to go after, even among, you know, Republican voters. I mean, if you look at the demographics of Republican voters, a lot of them rely on Social Security, just like Democratic voters and independents do. And so they don't want to be, you know, the leaders of the party often don't want to be seen as going after these programs. So they try to come at it from a different angle and say, you know, they're just looking to cut around the edges of it and, you know, sort of trim the fat. And they they won't ever directly admit that they're coming after these programs and they put a target on these programs. And so when, when they're confronted over it, you will immediately see a withdrawal. But the bottom line is, if you cut these programs, millions of people will suffer, even if you do just, quote unquote, go around the edges. And, you know, to be honest, and and all the years I've reported on this, Republicans generally are not that great at just going around the edges. They tend to go to the heart of these (laughs) issues. You know, they're not really, you know, subtle guys and gals about this sort of thing. They tend to go right for it. And so when they go right for it and they're not opposed, and, you know, they've been blocked into doing it by by Democrats over the years and, and doing these things. You know, but back in 2000, uh, I think it was 2005, when they tried to privatize Social Security after George W. Bush won his second term, you know, and and that would have hurt millions of people around the country. And the the Democratic Party stood up in unison and prevented it. And so, you know, they sort of let the issues slide by the wayside for a few years. But this, you know, this latest move shows that it's still in their sights and it's still something they're focused on. 
And like I said, you know, the other side of it is the debt ceiling, which is what they're threatening these programs with. Well, if they don't raise the debt ceiling, that could also crash the economy. So either their families are crashing the economy. It's not it's not a good deal any way around. Well, there is something in your article. uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. You quote some statistics from Moody's, which, of course, looks at all this financial stuff. And I think if the, the the whole debt ceiling issue, if they don't agree to that, what did they say? Something like six million jobs could be lost. Yeah. Yeah. The analysis from Moody said that several million jobs will be lost. And, you know, that will create a ripple effect, as we saw, you know, under under the Trump administration when we had covid. And you when you lose millions of jobs, well, it it. You know, I mean, just immediately being bad for families because they don't have income coming in anymore. But this creates all kinds of disruptions, both for us and around the world. That's the thing. Like, you know, as we learned over the last couple of years, this is a connected economy. Every economy in the world is connected to each other. And so you have this party that says, well, we're going to do this, you know, this thing with the debt ceiling in the United States. And yeah, we here in the U.S. will feel it immediately, but it's also going to hit around the world if they're allowed to do this. And then it'll come back again in another wave, because if the American economy is hurt, well, that hurts the world economy, which hurts Americans again. And it's like a double whammy. And so Mm -hmm. you have these really smart, you know, economist types that are like have said over the years, don't do this. And a lot of them, it's it's interesting, you know, my reporting on this. You see these sort of sober types of people saying, you know, that are not usually into hyperbole saying, uh, stop this. This is crazy. (laughs) We've never heard of a party doing this kind of thing before. And yet it's sort of become a mainstream Republican Party idea, which is really unfortunate. Well, and you make a good point. Mainstream Republican Party idea. I'm not saying that these ideas weren't always out there, but they were fringe ideas. You know, the Republicans from a million years ago were like, we want small government. We want to be tough on Russia. I mean, they had their talking points, but it's like the Republican Party as it exists now. I was talking about this earlier. You know, here in Illinois, we elected Chuck Percy to the Senate. He was a Republican. These days, if you look at who he was and what he did, he'd be a Democrat. The kind of Republican he was doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, these these are the sort of things that they used to say quietly under the radar. And, you know, I would personally, I, I track a lot of this to, you know, Donald Trump, because Trump kind of showed them, unfortunately, I would say, that you can say a lot of these outrageous things and get a lot of support, at least within their party, in favor of them and not get much of a backlash. And, you know, you have outlets like us at the American Independent that report on it, but you don't see that from enough of the mainstream media. So, you know, we're trying to do our little thing at AmericanIndependent.com and trying to get the message out there that this is a really unhinged way of approaching just basic economics. This isn't any sort of radical, you know, policy to be opposed to to, to be opposed to not raising the debt ceiling. This is something both parties have done multiple times in U.S. history, in recent U.S. history. Yes. Both parties have done it because you have pro-business Republicans. Pro-business Republicans don't want our economy to crash. They, they like making money, and, and like <laughs> that money helps their economy go around. And so even those, a lot of those guys have in the past been perfectly fine with raising the debt ceiling, but now 
you know, I think President Trump uncorked this sort of mania that has infected the party to take them to another level so that it's not really in the background anymore. It's, you know, you have someone like Kevin McCarthy, who is not from a, you know, extreme district, even though he has extreme politics himself, saying, oh, this this is fine. We're going to do that. And we're going to, you know, cut Social Security and Medicare while we're at it. Yeah, I would argue that 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 has become not only a talking point that they don't think they're going to get much pushback on, but I think a lot of these really radical ideas have become talking points that are absolutely vital to win your primary if you are a Republican. I mean, it's what we saw here in Illinois. I was talking to a couple of Democratic state legislators who said, you know, this next upcoming session in Springfield, Illinois, is going to look very different because we worked, we had a bunch of Republicans, uh, some of them were moderate people, we could work across the aisle, we could put bills together um, in a bipartisan way, and a lot of them lost their primaries to Republicans that were far yep. more radical. And this person was telling me, you know, honestly, I I don't know what this next legislative session is going to is going to look like. I mean, it's there. um, If you're a moderate Republican, I don't know what you do these days. I I just from what I see, you don't survive. I mean, hell, nobody would have even called Adam Kinzinger moderate. I mean, he and Liz Cheney, they voted with Trump. How what 90 plus percent of the time. And they still got kicked to the curb. It's right. it's a very it's strange sin. world. Yeah, Oliver. it's the sin of not supporting an insurrection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oliver, um, I've gotten way too obsessed with this one article of yours. When we come back from a break, I do want to talk about some of your other reporting. Oliver Willis is a reporter with the American Independent. It is a progressive news website that you should be bookmarking and taking a look at, AmericanIndependent.com. We'll be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. The American Independent is a progressive journalistic site. You will be able to get the news that you want, not only about Democrats, but uh, they keep an eye on the shenanigans the Republican Party uh, is up to as well. Um, we've been talking about Oliver Willis's reporting on what the GOP wants to do to Medicare and Social Security. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not good. But Oliver uh, has done some really interesting reporting on stuff like jobs and the good news. And here's the thing. You know, you see it in the New York Times and it's like, oh, economy added is 200,000 more jobs. But will it turn dark in a week? You know, and I'm like, ah, Um, Oliver, talk about what you, you I know. This is something that you have followed. Talk about jobs in America. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, you know, been kind of an amazing thing over the last two years. If you look at the record of jobs under President Biden, I mean, people, you know, if you want to go back and look at where where we're coming from over the last, you know, three years, where at one point, if people completely forgotten, you know, during the height of the pandemic, unemployment was over 14 percent. When Biden took office January of last year was at six percent. And now it's currently down to three percent. Right. It's, it's three. I think it's three point five percent. Right. And, it, and it's con- been consistent like that for the last almost year and a half. 
there was a report that just came out in the, in the last few days that we've had 10, uh, 10, 15 months where there's been 10.7 million job openings. Now, job openings have never gone over 10 million under any president, Democrat or Republican, in American history. And under President Biden, they've been up over 10 million, which means that there are jobs out there for people that they can get, you know, employed and bring, you know, this sounds basic, but they can be employed and bring money home to their families and not be unemployed. And, you know, and it's been a streak that's gone on for the last 15 months, you know, and even at the same time you have, yes, you have all these super important issues about, you know, inflation and headwinds and the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. But jobs have still been consistently outperforming these headwinds that have been going into the economy. And so you, you have things like, you know, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, which is basically designed to, number one, fight inflation, you know, and also it's also invested in more jobs. I mean, you've had all this legislation and some things I didn't even think would pass, you know, because we all thought that, you know, after the rescue plan passed last year, Okay, maybe that would be it. And that wouldn't, you know, there wouldn't be any more legislation. But you've had the Chips and Science Act. You've had the Inflation Mm -hmm. Reduction Act. You have the infrastructure bill. And a big component of a lot of this legislation, and, you know, Biden, to his credit, has emphasized this, is jobs. You know, whether it's green Mm -hmm. jobs, whether it's just jobs building bridges. I mean, and these are sort of basic things. And I think sometimes people don't think, you know, they may not be the sexiest jobs in the world. They're not the Silicon Valley jobs. But if we're repairing bridges, if we're repairing bridges in, in your state, Illinois, well, you have to employ a lot of people to do that. And a lot of these. Yep. And they're good union Chicago. jobs. Exactly. Yeah. This is something that Biden has said a lot. But, you know, like these are good paying union jobs. These aren't just, you know, random jobs out there. And so you incentivize companies to do this kind of thing. And you look at a lot of the legislation. It says, OK, well, if you want to do business in America, that's great. But you're going to have to build components for electric cars. You can't build them over in China and Taiwan anymore. You have to build them in Idaho and Illinois and, you know, Michigan. Like, and so yeah. building jobs here and, and you have these companies, some of them even foreign owned companies like Honda have said, OK, well, if we want to if we want to get our customers to get these rebates that the Biden administration passed and, and buy our cars. The law now says, well, you've got to make X amount, you know, in the United States. Okay, well, I guess we have to put a factory in Michigan. (laughs) So (laughs) once you do that in Michigan, well, it's a great Exactly, exactly. For a long time, we've lost the, you know, if you look at the trends over the last 20 years, we've lost a lot of these jobs to other countries. And, you know, presidents of both parties and, you know, President Trump always talked about how he was going to open up these factories and this, that. He never got infrastructure done. He never got, you know, anything like chips and science done. Biden has done that. And so now we can tell these companies, well, yeah, you can get a bounty from the Chinese government or you can come over to the U.S. and you're going to get some tax incentives and come build it here. Like we're competing. We're we're actually able to compete with these other countries now instead of just, you know, having having us as a country twist in the wind. And it brings jobs here. That's sort of the, the calculus behind the Biden administration doing these things. And I think sometimes these issues get, you know, they get very wonky and maybe hard to understand. But at the end of the day, job's good. (laughs) Job's good. Yes, I like that. And, you know, I have to say that just like you, 
every time since President Biden took office, you know, there's a big thing that gets passed. And I'm like, oh, that's great. We're going to have something to talk about. Wait, wait, there's another one coming down the pike. Oh, my God, we got that passed, too. Well, we got infrastructure passed. You know, that's great. We've got two really great things. And, you know, we'll never get Build Back Better, you know. And, oh, my God, here it comes. We got that, too. And I just can't. I can't believe I saw, you know, a lot of a lot of reporters from comedy shows have been going out to like Republican rallies and Trump rallies and talking to people and getting these absurd sound bites. And they were talking to this one guy and he was like, well, you know, are you going to vote Democrat or Republican? And he was like, oh, I'm probably going to vote Republican. Well, why? Well, because, you know, Republicans are really good for the economy. And I just, Oliver, I wanted to scream. I wanted to scream. And I get that. And and I think sometimes, you know, the problem is that because it's this weird sort of modesty thing sometimes, I think, with the Democrats where they don't want to brag about things. And and you you don't want to be overboard like, you know, Trump was bragging about things that he had never done. (laughs) You don't need to be modest about like if, if you're. If you're the president that opened a factory, you know, and passed a law that like literally you can I've reported on this where these companies have said in their releases, we would not be able to pass. We open this factory without this legislation signed Mm -hmm. by President Biden. Like they have literally said that in multiple companies across multiple pieces of legislation have said we wouldn't open this factory here if this law had not been passed. And then you look at the. Well, what is the legislative history of most of this legislation? You know, you you talked about the Inflation Reduction Act and the rescue plan. Well, no Republicans voted for that at all. Those those things didn't become law because other than having a tie breaking vote from Vice President Harris in the Senate. Like it was, you, you know, uniform Republican opposition and even on things that had bipartisan support. You know, like the infrastructure bill. Well, yeah, it was bipartisan, but still a majority of Republicans voted against it. I mean, they're not, they're, you know, these are the same Republicans that are now going out and taking credit for mm-hmm. you know, these construction projects opening in their districts and their states when they voted against it. You know, there's a, there's a saying that's been circulating last year, you know, voted no and took the dough. And you see this <laughs> over and over again, proving that these things are popular. Like, I, I, it's not even a partisan thing, like, you know, repairing bridges and roads is not a partisan, you know, party thing. Like Republicans, you know, President Biden has said this, Republicans drive on these roads as much as Democrats do. And so the idea that only, you know, only Democrats have mostly voted for these things, but the Republicans are trying to take credit for it, I think is a testament to how popular and how important these things are. Well, even Joe Biden said, was it just was it just last week, Oliver, where he was uh, campaigning down in Florida and he was talking about some of the yeah. things that were going to be coming that way? And then he said to the crowd, he said, you know, I'm sure your governor is going to take credit for it. You know, he, none yeah. of them, were, you know. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. And the one thing that I will say when it was the that chip, the article uh, the the bill about, you know, having more chip manufacturing, yeah. there is an Intel plant in Ohio. And as you pointed out, usually the Republicans vote against all these bills. And then when the benefits start showing up in their states, they take credit for the. Oh, look what I did. You're getting a new bridge. You're getting a new factory. (laughs) Um, But I will say that I watched Ohio. There were eight Republican Congress people who voted for the CHIP Act, which I thought, 
you know, shouldn't be something that we point out like it's a like it's a brave thing, because Intel had told them if this bill passes, we will expand our work in Ohio. And um, at least at least they voted for it that one time. But um, right. it, it's, it's sort of like what you said before about the party sort of going in, you know, against people that do things like that now. Like in the past, that was not a controversial thing, especially for a business bill. Like it, it, you didn't used to be punished within the Republican Party for voting for a pro-business bill. Like this used to be this used to be something to be perfectly blunt sometimes that they had to drag some Democrats along on. Yes. You know, to, 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 get, to get these bills through. Nowadays, you have a Democratic president signing a bill, giving incentives to open a chip factory. And we have to be talking about Republicans that voted for it. Like, you know, they're they're dinosaurs that are you know, right before the, yeah. the, the meteor hits. You know? <laughs> and, and, they, and a lot of the times they don't even like to talk about it. Because, like, I, I saw an interview a few weeks ago with one of the Republicans and they sort of said, well, I mean, yeah, it's good that we have this, you know, this coming here, but, and it's sort of like, they have to add on that, but, because they have to prove, well, you know, I'm really not for Biden. Yeah, he's bringing jobs to my state, but I got to prove to all of the rest of you that I'm not really for Biden. And it's like, well, if you're for this bringing jobs policy to your state, then I'm sorry, but you're, you, you're for, you're for Biden because that's Biden's position. <laughs> there you go. Jobs to you just state. don't like, know it. Really pro-Biden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oliver, I love your reporting. I love the American Independent. Please, for those of you out there, give it a look, AmericanIndependent.com, and particularly pay attention to the articles written by Oliver Willis. Oliver, thank you for joining us and talking about this. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Our good friend Pat Kreitlow works for the Up North News. And we have all been watching over the last few months everything that is going on up north. We've been reporting on this. Race between Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes, a race that is seems to be at times tilting one way, then tilting the other way, then not tilting at all. We are going to ask Pat to bring us up to speed on all things Wisconsin. Pat, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Joan. Thank you. So let's start... Oh, gosh. Let's start with Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes. What do you see happening right now? I I see happening here what we see in Wisconsin consistently for, oh, my gosh, at least since the turn of the century here. And that is consistently close statewide elections, whether they're presidential, gubernatorial, sometimes for Senate. We are one of the last truly... 50-50 divided states, which is very frustrating to pollsters, prognosticators, anybody who works for a political campaign and wants to sleep through the night. But this is who we are, and it will come down probably to some of the very last votes to come in to decide uh, whether we end up with 
both Democrats winning, both Republicans winning, or both incumbents winning, if people take that approach, then you'd have Democrat Tony Evers winning the governor's race and Republican Ron Johnson winning the Senate race. So we really have to brace for any of those outcomes. Elections are always so fascinating to watch in Wisconsin because, you know, while other people might say, oh, you know, he only won by 5%, it was a slim margin of victory. In Wisconsin, that would be a landslide. Why, Pat? Why? <laughs> it would. It would be a blowout. And it, it simply is the, the nature of the demographic here, the, the, the way the population has gone uh, with so many people in cities uh, voting Democrat. So much of the rural area now controlled uh, and uh, strongly in the grips of uh, Republicans. It It's such a cliche to say that it comes down to turnout, but it truly does. And for the Democrats to be successful Tuesday, they will need not not a single voter in Milwaukee, Madison, Green Bay, Eau Claire, you know, to, to take it for granted and to decide not to go, even though the weather might be rainy tomorrow. Uh, mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I would, I'm not going to say the same on the other side, because on the Republican side, if there's one thing we consistently say is they show up, they always turn out there. You're going to see that consistent turnout from, from rural and Republican areas, uh, because as, as one person put it, uh, you know, somewhat derisively, but uh, meant in jest, there are too many rural Republicans who are, you know, little old ladies with nothing else to do but vote. And <laughs> so they do. And, 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 and little old men and, and, and all kinds of Republicans who do. And for whatever reason, on the Democratic side, uh, folks are a little bit more fickle. And we see it in statewide polling that indicates that of likely voters, the races lean ever so slightly Republican. But when you survey the larger pool of registered voters, it's overwhelmingly favored for the Democrats, Evers and, and Mandela Barnes. The difference is a lot of those folks who say they prefer Evers or Barnes say, say they're not certain if they're going to vote or not. And that is the big question mark tomorrow. <sighs> Mike Crute, who does a progressive radio show um, out of Madison, said a few weeks ago that he had seen one survey that when people responded that they were definitely, positively, absolutely going to vote, there was a slight edge for Ron Johnson. But when the people in the category, ah, you know, I might vote, I might not vote, when those people were surveyed, they were for Mandela Barnes, 15 percentage points over Ron Johnson. If that doesn't illustrate turnout and how it benefits Democrats, I, I don't have a, a prettier picture than that. No, and it, it's been that way for the last couple of polls. It's, it's very striking. And to make things just a bit more mysterious here in Wisconsin, we <laughs> still have, thankfully, we still have same-day voter registration, which not every state has. And so we really don't know tomorrow how many people similar to the Kansas abortion referendum over the summer, how many people will, will come uh, out of the woodwork, you might say, uh, and, and say, I don't normally vote, but after this year, I'm showing up. And clearly, you, you talk to most Democrats and progressives, 
and they believe that there is a, a an underestimated, underappreciated number of new voters who will register tomorrow and make the difference. And if, if that doesn't happen, there will be a lot of navel-gazing about, you know, how did something that moved so many people so passionately for four months peter out in the fifth month? Uh, and so that's why today I, I doubt that there's a single dedicated progressive or Democrat that isn't working the phones trying to make sure that they can try to find those new voters and get them to come in and uh, surprise the pollsters tomorrow. Do you have any feel for the demographics of this? Because I've heard people say similar things to what you just said, Pat, and they a lot of times break it down into that there's going to be this young wave of newly registered young people or young people that haven't been talking to pollsters and are going to turn out in greater numbers than anybody predicts because of Roe v. Wade or other threats that they see to their freedoms. Do you have any feel for the demographics of it? Well, only only if I'm allowed to chuckle first about how people are now (laughs) using technology and demographics to play the lower expectations game by saying one of two things. They either say, oh, the polls are wrong because young people don't answer their cell phones for strangers, and so they're not reflected in the polls. But now you hear Tim Michaels and Ron Johnson, the Republican candidates for governor and Senate, and a lot of other people saying, oh, those pollsters don't reach Republicans because Republicans don't want to talk to pollsters. So the, both parties have, have a block of people saying, oh, don't listen to the polls. It's, it's going to be a surprise. And so once you, once you, you take that little chuckle into account, it, it, really, it, it really is going to be more about hindsight than foresight because, again, I wish I could sound more definitive, but we don't really know who's being underrepresented more in polling. If it is indeed young people or if it's Republican-leaning folks who, who don't talk to pollsters as, as readily as they used to, and that, that means that what everybody has been saying over the weekend and today is pretend the polls don't exist and yep. just run all the way through the tape on the finish line. I'm old enough to remember when your only voting option was Election Day and that a lot of the networks and even sometimes local news organizations would hire people to stand outside. And as you were coming out, they would they would accost you and they would want to know how you voted so that by the time the polls closed, they could say, well, our exit polling shows this person won, this person lost this uh, ballot measure passed. But, you know, what's what's the point of even trying to do that anymore? No, exit polling yeah, can only can only tell you about the same day voters. Yeah. And again, we don't know how many folks will will politely decline to talk to an exit poll, uh, you know, pollster. Uh, and so unless you were able to interview the people who mailed in absentee ballots, you're going to get a less and less representative sample of the electorate when you have, like here in Wisconsin, hundreds of thousands of people have already voted absentee. So there'll be nobody with a clipboard talking to them tomorrow because their work is done. Yeah. Plus, you know, if I've never my whole life, I've never responded to pollsters. I just think the rest of the world is just finally catching up to me. Um, but, 
We are talking to Pat Kreitlow. He writes for Up North News. We are going to continue to talk to him about uh, the election and his reporting right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Pat Kreitlow. He writes for the Up North News. And, Pat, I wanted to ask you about this article that you wrote about a veterans group that says Republicans are trying to block the counting of military ballots. Tell us about that. Yes, that, that's actually the thing that I was monitoring just before uh, coming on with you. The, the court case is going on even as we speak. And that is that a Republican group, the Thomas More Society, is joining with a, a Republican state lawmaker and others in suing and asking a Waukesha County judge who's hearing the case as we speak, asking that judge to order that every Wisconsin military absentee ballot be set aside, essentially be segregated and not counted tomorrow with everybody else's votes because of their concern that there could be something fraudulent about the military ballots. But the only reason there's any concern is that somebody involved with that right-wing legislator, somebody fraudulently obtained ballots using fictitious names of military members. So once again in Wisconsin, the only fraud that's committed is by people who are sympathetic to the, the Trump wing of the Republican Party point of view. And then as a result, they're trying to get a judge to say, well, we should set aside all the military ballots, even though not a single real military ballot has been found to be fraudulent. And we'll we'll compare that against a list of known military voters. And, you know, if somebody's not on the list, whether erroneously or not, their ballot's going to get put in the shredder. And that's that's a heck of a thing to do to our, our men and women in uniform who voted from overseas. And, you know, there was a time when I think the Republican Party would have looked at whomever was trying to do this and would have said it was shameful. Would, you know, the Republican Party seems to acknowledge, honestly, that they simply can't win elections fair and square without extreme gerrymandering, without like it's uh, without suing to remove ballots and disqualify ballots and decreasing the number of polling places and decreasing the days they're open. It's like they as much as as say, we know we have to cheat to win. So here's us cheating. Yeah, and it's it's something that this time around. Maybe this bit of cheating is the one that goes a bit too far. In a news conference today, we heard from retired General Bill Enyart, who is a a military advisor to the uh, Union Veterans Council. I believe he said that at one point he was in charge of the Illinois Army and Air National Guard and noted that his first absentee ballot was cast in 1969 during the Vietnam War. And he said, look, it's not just active duty personnel who are affected by this. It's it's our reservists. Reservists and National Guard members have been in combat zones, you know, since since just after the 9-11 attacks. And General Enyart says, tell me, how can you justify curtailing the voting rights of our brave citizens who take an oath to defend this Constitution, yet you want to deprive them of the constitutional right to vote? It is absolutely appalling, outrageous, and an affront to every patriot, veteran, and service member. And yet, right at this moment, 
the uh, the Thomas More Society and this legislator, who, by the way, isn't just any legislator. She is the chair of the Wisconsin Assembly Elections Committee, who has held a number of uh, I would describe them as dog and pony shows with conspiracy theorists. But it is her lawsuit that is being heard as we speak that could conceivably lead to these military ballots cast in good faith being segregated and not counted right away tomorrow. I, it's just, it blows my mind. It just, abs- do people understand what's going on? I mean, I know you wrote this article. I mean, does the average Joe understand what kind of attacks on, on votes that the Republican Party is trying to do? Well, here's, here's the only thing that I have in response, and it will, it will sound unsatisfactory to a lot of folks, but then others who are a bit more conspiratorial will know what I'm saying. This is in a Waukesha County court, but the person who fraudulently made up names of military members and obtained ballots for them is the former deputy elections clerk for the city of Milwaukee. And so while this looks like and is, you know, an attack on legally cast ballots by members of our military, they're banking that a lot of people will only hear Milwaukee fraudulent ballots and that it reinforces this trope that in these big bad cities of Milwaukee, Racine, Kenosha, Green Bay and Madison, you know, that there is something nefarious going on, even as and I think I may be saying this for the thousandth time, there has been no case of documented widespread fraud in any of these places. Um, It's just it's just unbelievable. And uh, I don't know if you've seen what I've seen this morning and yesterday that Republicans in a couple of states are starting to panic because by telling everybody not to vote early and not to use drop boxes and show up on Election Day, they're they're concerned that they may have sort of shot themselves in the foot because, again, in many states, the Republican voter tends to skew older if they're not feeling well that day, if they don't have an easy ride, if the weather isn't optimal, um, that, that the Republican Party officials are now afraid that too many Republicans will stay home. I don't know that that's something that, you know, re- the Republican Party in Wisconsin is worried about, but it seems to be something that the Republican Party out west is worried about. Would you say the Republican Party in Wisconsin... Do they feel do they feel confident? Is it just kind of like whistling in the wind? Are they just as befuddled as everybody else by how this election is going to go in your very, very close state? I I think that from a you know writ large, the Republican Party in Wisconsin is not as concerned only because Wisconsin, there, there's something in our DNA. We we have consistently had one of the highest voting rates in the country, even though we're more divided uh, from a partisan standpoint than ever before, voters in both parties still turn out in pretty large numbers. However, I I would absolutely uh, you know bet a donut that if you could get <laughs> get candid with state Republican leaders, they would say, well, they're going to turn out, but they really don't like that you know the Trumpers are trash talking absentee. Voting by mail because Republicans used to champion that for the reasons you just said they're they're skewing older. And so they they don't like that. They don't see a problem with fraud. They didn't see a problem with drop boxes. 
they're going along with it, which is completely, you know, against, you know, the ways of, of democracy in this country. But they still think that, you know, most folks will will swallow hard and decide that they're going to go stand in line to vote. But I know that, you know, the about the western third of the state is, is going to have some rain tomorrow. And, and there's going to be people that will say it's not worth it or something will come up and they won't get around to going. And they'll say, I, I probably should have voted by mail. But I, you know, I, I listened too carefully and I, I didn't do it. And now I'm not going to get to the vote today. Yep. One last thing in the in the little bit of time we have left. Uh, Tony Evers, uh, Tim Michaels, how do you see that playing out? Super close again. Uh, again, I would not be surprised if it is under one and a half points uh, that decides the race. I I still think that people will look at Evers and, and see that this was somebody with a plan and compassion compared to the two millionaires, Tim Michaels and Ron Johnson. What, what are these two multimillionaires going to do for us? And I think mm-hmm. that's ultimately where it's going to come down for Evers and Barnes. Gosh, I hope you're right. Uh, Pat Kreitlow writes for Up North News. Um, you can find it on your computer. Just go to upnorthnewswi.com. And uh, it's not all political. There's some there's some fun stuff. Best books for every child for the holidays. All kinds of news on Up North News. But uh, Pat Kreitlow is my favorite. I hope he's your favorite, too. Pat, thanks for being here. Thank you, Joan. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. We're going to take a break. We are going to come back. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the Affordable Care Act, something, as you know, it's near and dear to my heart. We'll have that and more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As you all know, uh, the Affordable Care Act, government insurance, um, pretty much saved my family when I was diagnosed with cancer. And I'm not the only one who has a story like that. Laura Packard is the founder of Healthcare Voices. She's also executive director of Healthcare Voter. She's also a stage four cancer survivor. And the Affordable Care Act saved her life as well. She does a call-in healthcare show called Care Talk. That's on ACT.TV. And she joins us now to talk about the Affordable Care Act, because I want you to know open enrollment is going on right now. Laura, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Good, and thanks for having me. Your health okay? Yeah, I'm doing great. So uh, thanks in part to the care I received through the Affordable Care Act. Yep, I hear you. Talk, uh, tell our listeners your story with the ACA. Well, I was diagnosed with cancer about five years ago, and thankfully I had good insurance through the Affordable Care Act. Uh, as a small business owner, I used to have junk insurance before, and the care I received uh, got me through six months of chemo and a month of radiation to be in remission today. That's wonderful. When I was diagnosed with cancer, it was in 2006 before there was an Affordable Care Act. And even though before my cancer diagnosis, I was fit and as healthy as I had been in my whole life, 
Um, I was uninsurable. Once my health insurance ran out through my union and I was no longer working um, in a union job, so after um, after a few months, um, even after I cobred, I thought, well, that's no problem. I'll just, you know, I'm healthy, I'm fit, I'll buy insurance over the counter. I know it'll be expensive, but what the heck, you got to do what you got to do. <clears throat> and I couldn't buy it. I I couldn't get anybody to insure me, even though I was, I think, pretty young and I was extremely healthy. I think that their tables, their uh, annuity tables, their statistics said, oh, yeah, look at her, look at her age. Yeah, she's healthy now, but something could happen and it's more likely than in a 20-year-old. So we better we better just leave her to her own devices. And a few years later, because uh, I couldn't find insurance, I was uninsured when I was diagnosed with cancer. And I was um, before in the state of Illinois, before the Affordable Care Act existed, we had passed something called the CHIP Act. It was an insurance program that was designed for low income kids to give them protection. But for some strange reason, there was a portion of the act where you could get insurance as an adult through the CHIP program if you were lucky enough to have one of the, I don't know, 12 or 14 diagnoses that they covered. And I guess, Laura, um, that was the silver lining to my cancer is I was on the list. So I I got my insurance through the CHIP Act and then as soon as the Affordable Care Act was passed, it replaced the CHIP Act, and I transitioned to the ACA. And it makes all the difference in the world, because I'm telling you, and I know you know this up close and personal, chemo ain't cheap. Mm-hmm. And all the medications so, you take along with it aren't cheap either. Exactly. So that's why it's so important. If you don't have health insurance right now, now is the time because it's open enrollment until January 15th. So you have a couple months to figure this out. You can start at healthcare.gov, no matter where in the country you live, and it'll direct you to the right place if there's a a site specific to your state. So go to healthcare.gov and find out if there are cheap or even free plans available to you. I was talking to Oliver Willis, who's a reporter with the American Independent earlier today, and we were talking about some of the wonderful things that have happened under President Biden. And correct me if I'm wrong, but currently under the Biden administration, isn't the number of uninsured Americans at an all-time low? Mm -hmm. Uh, And a record 14.5 million people uh, have uh, enrolled in health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. And um, that's at least partly due to President Biden and Congress uh, passing the American Rescue Plan and the Inflation Reduction Act, making it more affordable than ever to get health insurance. Yeah, because you can get subsidies, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, So many more uh, working families uh, can now get help paying for their health insurance. So if it's been too expensive in the past for you, go to healthcare.gov and plug in your income now and see what's available. So how does that work? You go to healthcare.gov, you can tell them how much money you make, 
And Mm -hmm. do you have to choose a plan to know what your subsidy is or how walk walk me through it in more detail? Sure. Well, um, what you you go to healthcare.gov and it may direct you to a specific state exchange, uh, depending on where you live, uh, or you may just use healthcare.gov and you will estimate how much you're going to make next year. And that will determine the level of support, uh, the level of help that you get. And so your estimates don't have to be perfect, but if, if you can just guess uh, and then um, you'll be able to see what plans are available in your area and what those subsidies will be. Uh, but one thing to note is that there are 12 states that have not expanded Medicaid, meaning that uh, unfortunately some people are, are not getting help from their state that they should be. And in places like Georgia, Florida, Texas, North Carolina, and even Wisconsin, some people are still not able to get health insurance because their state legislators refuse to do their job and expand Medicaid. You know, I know that that's something that certain Republican states have been very proud of the fact that they didn't do, but I don't understand that kind of casual cruelty. I don't understand not wanting people who need help and can't afford this any other way, saying, what, you don't deserve health care? And it, it, it hurts everybody in a state because we've seen so many rural hospitals close because uh, they can't afford to keep the lights on. And this is money that those 12 states should be getting from the federal government to pay for uh, health insurance for their people. It's free money, and they refuse to take it because uh, because President Obama signed it into law, that it's, it's become a political battle when helping your own constituents get health care ought to be the number one thing that you, as an elected official, are doing. You would think that wouldn't be very popular with the voters back home, a stance that says, yeah, you know, uh, I don't think so. I don't think you're going to get health care under me. Yeah, but uh, that's why it's so important. If you haven't voted yet, you go vote today or tomorrow uh, and look up your legislators and not just uh, your governor and your senator and all that, but look up your state legislators, your state assembly person and your state senators, because that's where this is being blocked on the state level. So make sure that when you're, you're voting, that you vote all the way down the ballot and you make sure that the people you're voting for support health care. Absolutely. And I know sometimes this is uh, this process can be very daunting. I don't know if it's still this way, but when I first started buying insurance through the Affordable Care Act, mm-hmm. plans would be grouped like, oh, do you want a silver plan or a bronze plan or a platinum plan? And that at least gave me an idea of, okay, this one probably going to cover more. It's probably going to be a little bit more expensive. Some people find all of this stuff very daunting. Um, can they talk to somebody if they do? Yes. And uh, yes, health insurance can certainly be confusing. And I use a broker. I, I need to figure out my plan for next year as well. <laughs> but uh, where you can start is you can go to localhelp.healthcare.gov 
and find somebody local to you that can really talk you through it. Because if you have questions, and most of us do, you, you can find somebody to, to help you answer those questions. And uh, are these plans strictly for an individual or are there family plans? You can get family plans. And actually, uh, one of the things that President Biden did was he fixed the family glitch, which meant in the past, sometimes people didn't qualify for Affordable Care Act health insurance because somebody in their family uh, already had an offer of health insurance, even if it wasn't very good, even if it was too expensive. Anyways, that particular glitch has been fixed. So yes, you can you can t- get your whole family enrolled or just yourself. Uh, you start at healthcare.gov. I have found in the past that healthcare.gov was remarkably easy to navigate. Um, I now, for the last few years, have glommed onto my my partner and uh, gotten insurance through where he works. So I haven't logged onto the site in recent years. How user-friendly is it today? It is certainly better than when they first launched it. There were glitches than when it first came out uh, uh, nearly a decade ago. Uh, So it's Certainly easier, but if you do have questions, you can always find somebody local to talk you through them. But also, you you can try uh, going through healthcare.gov yourself and see if um, you're able to uh, get everything answered that you need to know. In the last few minutes that we have, what are the key points that you really want to make sure our audience takes away today? Well, first of all, if you don't have health insurance, go to healthcare.gov and at least look at your options. And if you qualify for Medicaid or other forms, uh, it, it will tell you as a part of the process. Uh, and second, uh, healthcare is on the ballot tomorrow. So make sure you go vote and look up all the people uh, before you vote to make sure that they are supporting healthcare in your state. Because uh, sometimes those really obscure people at the bottom of your ballot are going to have more of an effect on your life than people, than, than a U.S. Senator maybe ever would. So it's critical that you get covered with good health insurance and that you vote tomorrow. What would you say to the young people whose argument is, well, you know, I'm not I don't really have a huge salary. Um, I don't get insurance through my employer. But, you know, I'm young. I'm in my 20s. Do I really need it? Well, we none of us know what's going to happen in the future. And I have friends of all ages that have gotten bad diagnoses, but it, it could even be you get in a car accident or you get hit by a bus tomorrow. So it is very dangerous to go without health insurance because one bad accident could ruin your uh, your your financial future for the rest of your life because, you know, a a big accident could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills. 
And I know that everybody who's young and healthy thinks that they're going to live forever. But folks, that's why we call them accidents, because we don't see them coming. Oh, I'm going to have an accident in three weeks. I better get health insurance. No, no, that's not how it works. And uh, Laura's absolutely right. I mean, you can bankrupt not only yourself, but your whole family trying to pay these medical bills if you don't have coverage. And I don't know if this is still part of the ACA, but I know that it used to be in the past that if you had somebody like this who's like, oh, I don't want to do it, I'm young, I'm healthy, you know, at the very least, there's something that I don't know what they're called now, Laura. It used to be called a catastrophic policy. Yeah. It was like it's not exactly. the day to day stuff. It's not the doctor's visits. It's not the drugs. But if something really, really, really bad happens, it would help you with the worst of the expenses. I don't know if those, if that's a category that still exists, but they tend to be really cheap, particularly if you're really young. And I'm begging you. No one in within the sound of our voices, Laura's and mine, should be without medical insurance because we are the examples of how your life can be upended in 24 hours. Yes, uh, and you you just never know. So um, if you're under 30, you may be able to buy uh, exactly what you said, a catastrophic plan or uh, or even just a bronze plan, the cheapest plan on the uh, marketplace, because at least um, you'll be able to get uh, see, see your doctor visits for an annual free checkup. You'll be able to get screenings like mammograms and so on for free. So uh, start at healthcare.gov check out your options and uh, it may be more affordable than you think. And if you're a parent or a grandparent listening to us, please, you know, find out what your family members are doing, particularly the young family members who are just starting out in their careers and have, have a talk with them. Laura, thank you so much. I clearly believe in this cause every bit as much as you do. We, we know up close and personal, it's a lifesaver. Thank you for being here and uh, reminding our listeners to act on this. Thank you. Um, we are uh, well, one last thing. Uh, the open enrollment period lasts through January 15th. So uh, time's a waste and kids get moving on it. Oh, we're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. Again, congratulate yourself. You've done a lot of good hard work. You have been fighting the good fight. You have been talking to your friends and your family and your coworkers and your neighbors. Maybe you sent out postcards. Maybe you did some phone banking. Heck, maybe you even knocked on doors. I want you to pat yourself on the back. You did a good job. We have fought the good fight. Tomorrow is November 8th. Gosh, I can remember when we were talking and it was like, well, it's 150 days away. It seemed like we had forever. And now it's here. And we have done a good job. And I think that we are going to see some great results when they finally come in. Don't expect them right away. Yes, we're going to be on the air tomorrow night with a special election show. But, you know, with mail-in balloting, it is, it is quite possible 
that in some races it is potentially going to take days. Yes, she said days uh, before the results of some races are decided. But we're going to be watching them all tomorrow night. Sean Caston, Lauren Underwood, Bill Foster, some of the races that have gotten a lot of attention for Congress here in the state of Illinois. We're going to be looking at our friends in Wisconsin. We're going to be watching what happens in Pennsylvania between Fetterman and Oz. Steve uh, Kornacki on MSNBC was saying last week that one of the states where we might see definitive numbers come in first is liable to be Florida. He said the panhandle, that's that little bit of land that's sort of up and to the left. He said the votes in the panhandle are going to take a while to come in, but the bulk of the state of Florida is going to be tallied sooner rather than later. Maybe we'll see Val Demings take over Marco Rubio's seat in the Senate, and wouldn't that be something to celebrate? Maybe Charlie Crist will surprise Ron DeSantis and send him packing. We are going to be keeping an eye on all of it and talking to some really interesting people. We're going to be talking to Rick Smith, Greg Palace, John Fugelsang, Hal Sparks, Jill Wine-Banks is going to be joining us. It is going to be a fun evening filled with great conversation. Tim Hogan, Patty, Patty Vasquez, and I are going to be anchoring it. We're going to hear from Santita Jackson and Edwin Eisendrath. It is, it's going to be fun. It is going to start when Patty's show wraps up at 6, and we will be on the air Till 10 o'clock. One thing we haven't quite figured out is whether or not we're going to have a drinking game. I suppose that could be dangerous. I don't know. We'll have to give that a little bit of thought, maybe talk about it more tomorrow. Anyway, (laughs) hope you join us tomorrow night. Otherwise, uh, Patty Vasquez will be here in just a couple of minutes. I will be here uh, tomorrow at 2. And again, remember, we're going to be on from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Listen on your computer. You get a real good signal that way. Hope you join us. Stay safe, my friends. Relax. Pat yourself on the back. You did good. Have a great evening. Good night.